Hi, everyone, and welcome back to RPG R&D. I am one of your hosts, Jess Geyer. I'm one half of Bunnyby Games, and I make tabletop role-playing games for all sorts of amounts of players. And I'm here <laughs> with my co-host, Craig Campbell. Hello, Craig. Hi, I'm Craig Campbell. I'm the owner of Nerdburger Games, um, and I also make tabletop role-playing games um, from all the way, you know, as Jess said, from one up to, uh, I don't know, how many ever you want players. Um <laughs> I've, I've no, I don't think I've ever jammed more than six at a time, but that's me. I know people who have done more. Pete, Pete, our guest, Pete, have you jammed more than six people at a table at once? Yeah, the, the most I, I don't know about the most, oh, gosh, you know, we, that's a topic right there. You're taking me back. I have <laughs> had a table of 12 people, um, Whoa. But, but the last one that I remember that I would count was seven. 12 was like an all nighter at a game store and they just kept coming in and wanted something to do. And I was like. <laughs> 15 and like sure you can play I, I don't think many of them actually played they were just at the table with the character in front of them because there's too yeah. many people but <laughs> yet i'm pete petrusha returning guest uh creative director at imagining games and a uh convention extraordinaire i sell games for ipr and other awesome game companies too so woohoo for the record, so, I, IPR is Indie Press Revolution, and if yes. you want, if you love your indie games, that is a good place to go find them. Um, and you can, you know, uh, especially uh, the the nice thing about IPR is they also sort of distribute. They act as a uh, consolidator, it's called, which is basically they distribute two game stores. So if your local game store doesn't have enough indie games, you can go tell your game store person, "Hey, check out Indie Press Revolution. You can get all sorts of stuff from them." You're one email away. Yep. <laughs> yeah, definitely somebody to look into too. If you're an indie designer and you have a game that you want to get into people's hands and yep. at conventions. Uh, well, we are talking, as as was alluded to, today we are talking about player size. Not not the size of your players, but the amount <laughs> of your players. I have played with gigantic, <laughs> hulking 10-foot players before. No, I think the max table size I've ever, play, I've ever run a game for was like 8 or 9. And that was too much, in my opinion, uh, yeah. for a role-playing game. Uh, although, of course, you know, I've I've been a GM facilita facilitator for like uh, werewolf games and stuff that have more than that. But I don't that's different. That's different. But, yeah, we're, we're talking about the amount of players at your table and what that means for you uh, as as a as a GM, as a designer and and what that looks like at all different facilities. Um I'm curious, what do you, what are the two of you think is like an optimum? Like you're just playing, oh, it's a regular, it's your average role-playing game. You are a GM. It's traditional style. What's the perfect, what's the optimal player amount? So if I can, uh, let me preface the topic. This kind of came out of an interesting thought uh, by a board game designer, Jonathan Gilmore. And I realized in this panel that we were talking at that like, wow, this varies a lot with RPGs. And then it just really was like, in the back of my head and then i looked at john like you know when it was a quiet moment towards the end like hey do you do you feel that way with like role-playing games or whatever because he did kids on bikes with doug Lewandowski, um and we just kind of had this little side chat after a while because the where it really stemmed from was the idea of like a quick start experience more so for board gaming but we have plenty of quick starts in role-playing games and <clears throat> you know you can run in the situation where people play the quick start and then they leave and they go, well, that game would be so much better if it had this, this, and this. And those might be in the full game, but because it had to be a trim down to give you the experience, um, 
it may have had those cuts or maybe those were more complicated things that came in the full game later, but weren't done for the quick start because sometimes quick starts happen early. So it really was just kind of throwing me because especially with the board game world, every mechanic counts so much more, you know, in role-playing games, we have all this personal uh, influence on the games. We're like, you know, honestly, at times the game system can suck, but if the players are great, you know, that's, there's a reason why we've all played like every other genre in D and D before, right. Or Shadowrun or whatever your, your go-to game system was when you started and didn't realize there was all these games. Um, it can be done not well, but it can be done. If you don't know any better, it's awesome. But yeah, so like with quick starts or with the number of players or with um, like, should the experience be the same so that it never trivializes the experience? Like that's what this game is. So that led to the number of players. So I'm just giving you more to percolate in the back of your minds of like other angles of this, because yeah, should the experience be the same exact thing for two people and six? If not, should it be a two-player game? Uh, and then how does that work when you add every game kind of should be a solo game these days from a publisher standpoint? Because why wouldn't you? Then they could play it. Anybody could play it anytime they want. So there's the, and that's, you know, the money grab part of it is like, if you can do it, but when do you stay true to the experience? Because that's the game. So, uh, and again, that's more of a board game thing, right? Because it's got to be that specific interplay uh, where our games have more, discretion of who's acting when and who what kind of people they are and how proactive they are and what they jump on how they how they like to play so yeah um, i'm i was hoping that the answer for what's the optimal would be there isn't one it really does depend on the game yeah. <laughs> because yeah. that's true i mean for me the more people that are at a table like there's a little bit more balancing you have to do as a gm but from a designer perspective like there's a lot that goes into deciding like how many people am I imagining are going to be sitting down and playing this and what it's going to be like what is what is their turn like for a board game like the 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 time per turn is so important because if it's a really mm -hmm. long time while people are sitting around and waiting for their turn it gets a little boring gets a little bogged down if it's simultaneous play it's a little different but you can't really do simultaneous play in a role-playing game in the same in the same way in like role-playing scenes i mean you could have i guess you could have a you could have a role-playing game where everyone's having their own little side conversations all the time but at that point you're more into a larp than you are into a role-playing game <laughs> now craig you've made more games than any of us with the target audience shifting amongst them so yeah where do you what are your thoughts so well it's interesting because you kind of circled around a lot of the things that I was going to say in kind of uh, a more succinct way, which is and, and and speaks to what Jess was just saying is that there is no such thing as an optimal number. Because I was going to say, well, if you're playing D and D, kind of classic D and D, there's four roles to fill. Like you know, four is the optimal. You need to have a fighter type, a roguey type, a, a divine uh, caster, and, a, and an arcane caster, and that gives you, as Pete was saying, quote, the experience. D &D. so funny by the way you've got each of those reason, things i always but, think five but you're right there's right, four right but i'm just five. i was gonna say yeah. there's a caveat there's a caveat yeah. which is five yeah. which is you you add a you have a fifth player and that's your like utility player like to to you know to to use a baseball term that's the player that can like i got somebody that can like kind of help with fighting stuff and has some skills and maybe a few <laughs> a few cool spells so when the group needs extra fight I can help be the extra fight. And if the group needs a little extra healing, I can be the extra healing or whatever. You might have that sort of thing, but you can play, you know, with other games, I think, um, you know, uh, uh, like 
it 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 again it kind of depends on how the players are going to play and and how they're going to interact with each other I'm, i remember playing games of vampire with only three players but each of the characters had a good reason to be with and working with the other characters but they were each different clans and each had their very specific political needs and and goals and things so that some of the things that they were after on behalf of their clan was in opposition to other characters and so three worked really well but now like at the same time if you like a super political game and you want to really get what vampire can be have that sort of a relationship but with like six characters and they're all different clans and they're all like there's this web of conspiracy and and who's um, helping who and who's like trying to wheel and deal this or that and who's trying to gain power this way or that way um you know i think uh 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 a lot of games, it really comes down to kind of what do you as in because with 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 some games, there's there's a definition of like, oh, there's four roles that are kind of the thing. But some games, it's like you build, you know, skill point based characters and it it really starts to become like, well, what's the experience that this group of players wants to have? What's the right number of players for that game? And a lot of the times the GM, without knowing it, makes that decision. When they decide their group size, when they think I'm going to run a game of this, you know, I'm going to run uh, start running this a campaign of this game. And, you know, they kind of know like what they think the experience is that they want to provide with that game based on the types of experiences you can get with that game. And so I'm going to have this many players that I know I have kind of bases covered. It's enough players that there's variety amongst them so they can do a lot of different things, but there's not so many that combat slows down. Um, or that anybody starts to feel that they're they're not getting their turn, all that sort of thing. So it's it's you know, and that's that GMing and and player choice and the fact that many games can be so variable is what makes designing for a player experience based on player type very difficult, I think, because it it's like trying to bake that into the game becomes harder um, than if, than having a game where you like you, you as a, the designer, give that decision-making to the players and say, how do you want to play the game? You, you can play it with a GM and two players and you get this experience, or you can play with six players and you get this experience. And they're a little different. I mean, it, there's also a lot of practical reasons too, why, why a GM is going to have a certain amount of people at their table. Um, you get any more than one person at a table and now you have schedules to have to work with. And especially as people are getting older and they have more responsibilities, maybe you have kids, whatever it is, it's hard to get people regularly. Maybe you don't even know four people who want to play a role playing game with you. And yeah, you're going to be like, I've like, I play D and D with just two players all the time or three players just because of that's the amount of people who want to sit down and play a game. But I think it's fine. I personally think it's fine that if, um, you have multiple players getting a different experience. Like you have a group of two getting whatever experience out of this game. You have a group of five getting whatever experience out of this game. Um, you're going to get a different experience out of the game just because you are a different person with a different table. It's not going to, it's not a, I mean, even if you sat down and watched a movie, you're going to get a different experience out of it. And I think that's fine. I think it's, it's not super, it's not something to super stress about, but it is certainly something to think about. I don't even think you necessarily have to be explicit with it in your text. I don't think you have to say like, Hey, this is what the game is like for this many players. I think that you can trust a lot of your players to be smart and figure that out and know that, know that if they uh, go outside the guidelines, they're going to um, maybe, maybe it's going to be a little weird for them. 
Yeah, I think as a GM, you're going to have your moments where you're going to tell them like, oh, well, you know, you can both be the same class or the same playbook. But if there's two players and you're both that same one, you might have this kind of an experience, right? Just because you might know the system better than them of how it'll play out or how it work with the setting, um, you know, because party based games. Uh, a flip side of what Craig said that's funny is how many times I see designers who haven't played a lot of games who just, you know, they don't know what they're coming in with, which is like the baggage they carry of what an RPG is. And that party experience is one of those things that happens a lot. And sometimes like with my first game, I watched an actual play of them playing the Stream Chaser game. And when they did, one of the comments that uh, one of my friends was saying was watching it was like, they're playing it like it's D&D. And it was very funny because it was it's not a conscious thing the players were doing. It's not a conscious thing the game master was doing, but they were they were trying to have a separate like a party build in how they approached the game and that they needed this kind of a balance because that's just like how you play a role playing game. That's what it is. And it was funny because it was like, no, this is like a movie where it can it can focus in on each character and be their experience almost like just like what you're saying, like we all do have our own unique experiences. Our characters can have their own unique experiences too, like a movie. They don't all have to be like, oh, we're roles in a video game and we just press the hit button and the defend button. Yeah. You can run for it or you can pick the thing up, you know? Um, so it's, it is funny too, how like, um, I, I bring that up because especially as a game designer, that's one of those things you have to look at and you'll see more of it in your own stuff. But uh, usually it's the, I've played three games before and I'm going to go make my game. And I'm like, and you, other people see it right away. of like, yeah, does it need five? And why, why, why is this balance of like the, the party makeup thing? Like, I know you didn't call them parties, <laughs> like, but you're kind of doing this thing, you know? I mean, that's the thing. What makes like, yeah. Like if you have like the slotted roles for people playing your RPG, I totally see that. Like I see where a lot of, designers are coming from with that kind of experience too and there's a type of game where that is that's not the kind of game i like to play i like to play games that are very highly interactive and like you're playing uh, like most of the stuff that's happening at the table is not necessarily you interacting with the mechanics but it's you interacting in character with other characters or npcs and when you have a lot of people at the table all doing that same thing that's where it gets hard it's if you it's it's everyone's a main character when you're playing a role-playing game and the more main characters you have kind of the the harder it is to make sure like as a gm everyone is getting a spotlight everyone's getting you know not necessarily equal but an equitable amount of time at the table to express and learn and develop their characters um and it's a lot easier to do when it's just you have like two players at your table um and weirdly, it's very hard to do when you just have one person. Um, <laughs> uh, very, very hard to do. Um, yeah, that's not surprising. I've I've run into that because I've occasionally run for just one person, and yeah, it, because you know, if you if you if you got two players, then if one person kind of gets stumped on something, the other person can help. But if you're if you're the only player and you're like, I'm not sure, <laughs> paralysis analysis can. Well, they also the don't have another to player halt. to bounce things off of. It's literally just you and them. And that's a lot for you, too, because you're also just one person. And unless, I guess, I mean, no, I feel like it would be hard for everybody, even if you were an actor. Like, it's going to be difficult for you because you have to create and act at the same time. It's it's a hard thing to do. It's, it's a lot of mental load for the player and the GM to just be one-on-one. -on -one. There are some games, there are some really good one-on-one -on -one games, though, that I've played and I've really enjoyed. 
Um, but a lot of that mental load happens within the game text at that point where they're giving you, they're designing NPCs for you. They're giving you like these moments for growth um, and they have mechanics to support that within the game. Um, like I really enjoyed playing Cthulhu Confidential, for example, everything was kind of laid out. You had a character that was pretty much pre-generated, although there were rules in there that you can make your own. And uh, it, it felt really fun just to like sit down and and interact as a GM with a person playing a character and trying to learn and, and give their own flair to this character. Um, so that mental load has to go somewhere, I guess is what I'm saying. It's easier when it's spread out with a lot of people, but there's at, there's at some point where it's like untenable. Like everyone's talking, everyone wants to talk, everyone's, you know, or people are leaving the table and coming back after a week or whatever it ends up being. Um, Oh, it's just so people are complicated and messy. You mentioned that. Like, I <laughs> still want to play Knights Black Agents, the solo ops, you know, basically the Jason Bourne game. Um, that's one of the few times where I really wish I was 13 again because I would have one of my best friends be able or I would run <laughs> it for someone. Because I'm so fascinated by the idea of like if one player is the campaign, you know, if one player is the and maybe I'm saying it wrong because what I'm leading to. If one character is the campaign, like the Jason Bourne character, and I run that game for you, Jess, and you play this character and you go through it, what will my experience be like? Because I think there would be some vicarious both of us playing because it's such an intimate experience of having two players and one major character. So anyway, that's you just made me think of that, especially when I can hero worship in that way of like a born like badass character of like both of our dreams. But I, I want to make sure we talk about the spotlight thing because, you know, as a game designer, that's probably one of the biggest reasons of why you design a game with the number of players in mind is because of the spotlight. And by spotlight, you know, clearly you probably talked about this billions of times on this podcast, but just like the focus on the players, uh, of the focus of them having time to address their character in depth and uh, usually, clearly, when you have 12 players at the table, there's very little time for that. Uh, the only time there usually is, is like, hey, roll initiative. Okay, who's next? Roll an attack. Because we got to get through it real quick. Because, you know, people are already opening their books and doing other stuff while they're waiting for their, their you know, turn 12 people. But, you know, like bringing up Dream Chaser earlier, um, that that's probably the game that I've made that has the fewest amount of players. Where like something like Chew, we found deeper on that we're like okay we're always saying five players but honestly when the sixth person shows up if we have a pre-gen like it almost doesn't affect the game and spotlight's just a critical thing of like how introspective are your characters like how much and if you want to go to design theory like how how, how much do we get into simulation play like do we care about like how they woke up how they hit the alarm clock what they did do characters have rituals? Do they have things that they do that we care about at the table? Do they have relationships that we want them to act out, calling their mom, calling their girlfriend, calling their you know kids, whatever? Um, if we don't care about that because the focus of the game is you know the born identity and it's the spy stuff, then we skip that, right? So it's interesting to talk about Spotlight and how that affected different games. So like Jess, I know like with the means of magic. Um, every character kind of has like different factions that are part of. Did you feel that that like made them need more time, like player count wise, or did it did it still kind of keep it in that like you know four to six like a lot of games? Um, I I we were designing it for like an idea four to six. Um, 
I played it. It is the sweet spot. Yeah, it it is. It is. And that's that's where I've played it mostly. But the the thing that I found, like either making a game or, or running one where you have a lot more players, if you have a game that has a lot of themes for the players to kind of chew into and like different areas where they can kind of insert their characters because they're not all necessarily involved in that faction. There are different ways to interact with that faction. Like you could be on the run from the academy because you're not paying your student loan debt, or you could be, you could be a, a child that was lost and adopted by the Fei and now you're back out into the society, or you could be, um, you could be a corporate spy who's trying to spy on the lowdown people who are who are uh, messing around with you. Like there are lots of a- avenues for people to get into, and that kind of like harkens back to what Craig was saying about the vampire games. Like there's a lot of there's a lot of intrigue. When there's more intrigue you can get involved in, there's more of a chance for everyone to share the spotlight because the spotlight is not necessarily a spotlight. It's like a bunch of different lights and colors in those lights. And depending on how your character uh, is interacting, there are different motivations for them to step back or, or step forward. Uh, that's a maybe a rambling way to say, um, if you have a very simple game where it, you are just fantasy people adventuring and you are just fighting monsters, there's not a lot for you to dig into. But if you have a, if you have a game where you're exploring something specific, you're exploring themes of death, you're exploring themes of capitalism you're exploring themes of um your love whatever that ends up being people are more apt to want to explore how not only how their personal character reacts with those themes but how their personal inter- character interacts with how other people are interacting with those themes it just makes it easier for everyone involved at the table Greg, I got a beautiful setup for you right there right it's i mean you're doing capers cyberpunk <laughs> so like I know with Shadowrun, because that was like my first RPG experience, it's the game of specialists, right? So it it has that party makeup, but a little bit different because they're over-specialized. And some of that has to do with technology too. Like when we all have cell phones and cars to get to each other, well, do we all have to be together all the time? You know, it makes sense with D&D when you have a buggy and cart and it takes two (laughs) weeks to get somewhere. If you're not with us, you're far, far away. So like, you know, when you think about number of players, how did that change with capers? 1920s roaring 20s and cyberpunk well the 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 core system and kind of the the approach that i took with the original game was like yeah it's the 20s so like the characters kind of need to be together a lot because like if somebody's on the other side of the city like um you know it's going to take them a while to get to you because the traffic's going to suck and they have they may not own a car and blah 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 and they got to call on a phone and not everybody has a phone and so forth so the the assumption was kind of everybody's together um and then in cyberpunk i think just as it is in any game where there's um if you've got teleportation or if you've got instantaneous communication or if you've got like cyberspace where people can suddenly kind of start being they can start by being apart and then they can have a whole thing happen where they're all suddenly together and then they go to back to being apart like almost instantaneously um you just need to have a method built you know just from the design perspective like i i thought about it was like have a method built that like makes sense for like and then have a system built that makes sense to allow characters to do everything together um and also to be able to do separately where you can almost like cut scene between people and just if the you know hopefully as a gm it can be a little bit of a tax you know taxing to 
keep track of it but like if you got three different groups of characters and they're doing different things you got to you'll jump between them almost like you're in a combat <laughs> yeah. where you're just taking turns where you but you're jumping between these three scenes you know and cut to this thing happening and cut to, and leave them on a cliffhanger every time if you can you know like around a decision point where that gives them a chance to think um and then i found myself thinking about like you know also from the design standpoint was like how do you treat something like cyberspace like there's there's arguments to be made for like i jack into the web and I can do X, Y, and Z super duper fast because everything's functioning at the speed of a computer. Um, and computers can be super duper fast. And there's an argument that that makes sense because you've got this stuff in your brain that's going to like, you know, jack you in and that's going to help you to do that. But then there's also the argument that like, well, the brain, you know, you only think so fast, Pete, you can only make decisions so fast. So even if you can, you have your brain is harnessing a computer and you're living in a computer space, your brain is still like, well, what do I do? Which is, I've got option A, B and C, which one should I do? Let's weigh the options and think about it. You're not going to be super fast. Um, so it was presented in such a way that, and, and that, and that allows it, that allows all the characters to continue to function at the same time. Like I could literally have, Three different groups in, in in Capers Cyberpunk. These two characters are engaging in a street fight, combat, straight up combat. This this character over here is having a um, a very tense conversation with somebody, and these two characters have jacked into cyberspace and they're doing something, and they can all be running at the same time, so that in the game world it makes sense. I'm not suddenly leaving a group out, being like, "Well, we can't. We're not going to get to you because you're, you're what you're doing is slower." You know, like that doesn't come into play because you're you're allowing it to all kind of function at the same speed. And that was like that's why I just decided to, to define cyberspace the way I define it. That way it can everything can stay kind of at the same speed. It can all make sense. Um, and your hacker player is not going to like need to like, OK, well, while this one round of combat is taking place, the hacker is over there at the terminal having 10 rounds of hacking. And now everybody go get a drink. And use the bathroom and go chit chat over there and play on your phones while I resolve this these nanoseconds over here with the hacker, um, because that changes the uh, like you said the the spotlight thing. It suddenly puts a whole bunch of spotlight over here. It suddenly creates a bunch of downtime for people, and that's not an optimal play experience for most players. Um, some players be perfectly fine watching yeah. the story of the hacker doing cool hacker stuff. But some of the players are going to be like, oh, I'm so bored. That's a really smart way to handle it. You know, I've never, I, I really like in games when there is some way that people can be communicating to throughout all of this. Because when you have, let's say you have like, you're playing a, a, a thiefy heisty game and you have one person who's in the building and, you know, they're, they're the one who's sent in because they have like the lowest a chance of getting caught and like everyone else is kind of sitting on the outside they don't really have a, a way to react to what's happening on the inside because they don't know what's going on unless you have a mode of communication when you have that mode of communication in your game or at your or at your group um, they run into a problem and now you on the outside can solve it for them whereas if you don't have that you've cut off that mode of communication now you have to run two different scenes you have to run the inside scene and the outside scene what if they can communicate telekinetic uh, telekinetically tele telepathically that's yeah, the right word. <laughs> telepathically <laughs> osmosis. or with communication yeah. cyberware yeah. earpieces blah 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 you know 
shield agent <laughs> your pieces whatever games it is. i've ever been a player in um had seven people at the table and that's a lot for a gm to handle and often we would split the party but we almost always had a character who had a psychic <laughs> link to everybody and was able to communicate and that let us do all sorts of fun things and share a scene no matter what um unless we happen to be miles and miles away from each other um and yeah i i really like like Craig, I love I love the idea that yeah, you have this cyberspace area, but there is a mechanic reason why you still have to be sharing. You still have to share. Um, and I think that game designers should think about like, is there a mechanic in your game that lets somebody just like take off running? Because if there is, you need to you need to look into that because you are not going to be it's going to be harder for the gm to facilitate not that it's going to be impossible but it's going to be harder for them to facilitate a, a good sharing at the table you made me think of sometimes the, how valid having initiative is because in the way of a lot of a lot of story games don't do initiative you know they just like okay well whoever has something to do goes next and then if the game master or whoever's moderating needs to um they can be like oh it sounds like this we go first and then that would happen or this is going to happen because of that but it's interesting because initiative does give you that moment to, to check in with every person uh, or mechanically to tell your game masters to check in with every person because every action's valid, right? You get, it's really your spotlight. This is your moment to do something, um, which, you know, we know at the table, sometimes that's just like, well, I don't know what I would do or, you know, pass or I, it, I don't need to do anything. Um, but Craig, you know, one thing on the GM side that you mentioned was like, trying to leave each person on a, a cliffhanger when you know that you're bouncing between party members. Uh, I just ran a chew game. Uh, I mean, it's a couple weeks now, but at a convention and I had one of those games where it was kind of investigative. So the group really broke up into three groups of two. Uh, but one of the groups was still kind of like both each person was doing their own thing. So I really had six people that were playing with like four different turns. Um, and it was just one of those experiences where you're like, Everyone had a good time, but clearly everyone wanted more spotlight. But I could only do what I could do with what I had. And they were breaking up into four parts. And there was no part of the game that said we shouldn't do this, right? It just, they're free to do that. But that is kind of the cost of being players in that situation. If you break up and that many divides, uh, we have to bounce between you and give you a fair amount of time. We can't leave anybody hanging for too long. So Craig, do you really think everyone should get a cliffhanger if you can? Or are there any tips you have of like, how, how do we bounce, right? Or do you sometimes just go, it's been three minutes, been five, like at five, it's a hard out. I got to move to somebody else or. Um, I'm of the opinion that um, a cliffhanger or a yeah, decision point is a great way to put it um, is, is good for when you switch between groups that are kind of functioning individually because, and, and to add, to add, to uh, speak to the question of like, you know, how many minutes do you spend with each? Well, that that can be variable. Like if you're if one of the groups is dealing with combat and there's going to be an attack roll and a damage roll and a soak roll and a hit location roll, then you know everybody plays the game. They know that that's how the combat that's that's going to happen in a combat. The combat's going to take a little more time than maybe you know all this is happening in ten seconds or something. And when I get around to you, uh, Jess and 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 me talking, you're going to have ten seconds of a conversation. Like we're going to try to make this con the short con short bit of conversation that we're doing as interesting as possible. Um, and leave it with a, like I said, a cliffhanger or a decision point. Um, GM advice, just generally speaking, also it helps you, at, it helps me anyway, as a GM, keep track of where were we when I come back to that 
that group or that player. If I leave like, okay, like you guys are having a fight and um, I ended on, okay, and you get ideal five damage to you. Okay, next over to the other group here. And when I get back around to them, I'm like, crap, where were we? I mean, I know I just dealt you damage, but what was yeah, what was my worst. baddie in the middle of doing? What was what were you what were you in the middle of doing? Um, but if I leave you with like, okay, I deal five damage to you, and now you are bleeding profusely and going to take damage every round. Next. Um, and I come back, well, now they've got time to think about, well, what am I gonna do? Am I gonna just eat that damage? Am I gonna take the pause to bind wounds or use some healing or whatever? And when you come back around, it's easy for me as a easier for me as a GM to remember that's where we were it's in the also, fight. was this moment where a decision or a cliffhanger it's also or an something opportunity for the gm to tie things in thematically like oh this is actually a good uh like thematic stopping point you don't have to tell your players this but like you can or it's a good story stopping point like i can tie in this little bit of a cliffhanger decision point into their cliffhanger decision point and now i can bring them back together and make them have to team up to solve this problem there are lots of ways you can take advantage of that Oh, and I'll do, I'll, I'll say this too, just kind of building from that was like, let's say I'm running the two of you and, you know, and Pete's running, uh, running a fight and Jess and I are having like this heated NPC conversation. No, no roles involved. You're like, you're trying to get information out of me and we're just role playing it. Well, Pete, fight, fight, fight. You roll, make some roles, blah, blah, blah. I make some roles. Um, I deal all of a sudden, like I crit, I deal massive damage. You're in very, very bad shape. I know this. We're making it clear at the table. Like Pete remarks, <laughs> oh my God, my character's going to die. I come back to Jess and we have our conversation. And for the sake of the story, because I'm thinking about this cinematically, this is the point where I make sure Jess doesn't get anything from me. I put Jess in danger verbally. So now both of you are in a really bad spot. Now I go back to Pete and we resolve the fight and he saves himself and I go back to Jess and she, well, Pete was saving himself. Jess came up with some great way to kind of turn the tables on me verbally. And, uh, you know, that happens. And so, like, it's almost like you're actually in the scene together because you're all losing at the same time. And then you're all recovering you and winning the literal, at the same like, time. And that, see that in movies and I TV shows like, that all the time. like Star Wars. Like, it seems like every one of the newer Star Wars movies, like the last half hour is just that them bouncing between tense scenes of every character wherever they are yeah you could also literally like have the have the other scene interrupt the others like pete pete's characters fighting and fighting and fighting and and my character is getting caught in a lie or whatever it is and then pete's character and during his escape jumps through the door where i am in the interrogation room <laughs> you could also have stuff like that happen <laughs> um it just like right or or you or you get you get Jess in the conversation, like you decide to step back from it because things are getting too heated and you make a phone call, not realize yeah. Pete's in the middle of a fight <laughs> and Pete's earpiece goes and you're like, things are going poorly over here and Pete, and then you cut to Pete yeah. just getting wailed on. They're not going so great yeah. here either. I mean, the, the thing that I have always had issues with as a GM and as a player too, um, isn't necessarily like when people are getting split up and having their own scenes. It's when you're in a, a single scene together and there's a lot of information or things to do within a, a room or something. And like in, in D and D you can basically take as many actions as you want and everyone has access to the same sorts of skills. So if there's something to, investigate in the room one person whoever ends up having like the high what is that wisdom or intelligence it doesn't matter whoever has the highest is the one who's going to kind of like 
steal the spotlight. They have they have better stats here than everybody else, and they can just keep going and going and going, or one person can fail at it, and then they can be like, oh, I'll try, and then they get it. I've always hated that, um, which is part of the reason why we did the mechanics in the Means of Magic the way we did, where you can you can do it, anyone can, you can try this out, you'll be successful until you hit your stress point. So there's really only a limited amount of actions you can take in a scene before something bad starts happening to you. Um, and thinking about how like that, that action economy is working with your, with your players can help with not just like an at, like a, a fighting scene where initiative is very important, but also with uh, the scenes where we traditionally don't have like initiative. Everyone's just kind of interacting with the scene. Um, you're forcibly sharing, you're uh, forcibly making everybody share what they're doing and you can't just keep trying and trying and trying until until you get the result you want um i i enjoyed the way that we did that um and it also it yeah it also makes people have to do things like what we were just deciding like what we were just talking about like i have my thing going on they have their thing going on we are gonna have to work together at some point you made me think of something really interesting but i don't know where it goes which is fun game designer thoughts but but I was, what I was going to ask you before is that, you know, one thing that's kind of cool to talk about is like your first, I don't know if it's your first game, but I know Moonpunk was earlier on, um, you know, it's powered by the apocalypse. So do you feel like the playbooks, you know, we talked a lot about D&D and classes, classes kind of lead to parties and that's not necessarily true, but the class, you know, when people think classes, they do because classes are divides of the four different types or whatever. Um, but I, I know from Forge in the Dark experience that like Forge in the Dark scales really well. It doesn't really care if you have one or six players because every role scales because that's the whole thing that's got this position and effect that scales completely to your your specific situation. What about Powered by the Apocalypse? Is there a number of players that's ideal because of how the system rolls? Not really. They're like the like the playbooks are like everyone has at least in Moonpunk and a lot of the Powered by the Apocalypse games that we had uh, looked at while we were writing the game and creating the game and played before we created the game. Um, there's a shared list of uh, there's a shared list of moves that everyone can make, and they're typically like just some basic things like, oh, I don't know what to do. I'm gonna fight. I'm gonna run. I'm gonna look around. Like whatever that ends up being. Um, and then all the individual playbooks have their own moves that are. <laughs> our methods for solving uh, a problem or getting over an obstacle. Um, so everyone is kind of, you're, you kind of have to do things in different ways and depending on who's at your table, um, or like what, pl what playbooks are at the table, uh, problems are going to be solved in different ways. One of my favorite convention games I run um, with Moonpunk is called big lizard in my backyard which um, is a story where people see a giant lizard outside the dome and people are freaking out about it. And if you have like some really science oriented characters, you're going to get them kind of making decisions together, like based off of like, Oh, what do they think it is? We're going to do some experiments. We're going to do some tech stuff to try to like figure out what this thing is and get out there. But if you have a bunch of action-based playbooks, they're going to go out there like, Oh, we're going to, we're going to go fight this giant lizard. We're going to go on an adventure. Uh, and the playbooks are just like a, a method of like g giving you a guideline uh, characteristically of how, how, how do you handle a problem? What's your method of 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 solving an obstacle? So when you get a lot of people together, they they all have their own methods of solving a problem, and 
no one is kind of stepping on each other's toes in that way. Uh, so I've had I've had games of, of eight people um, for Powered by the Apocalypse games. Um, I've had games of oh, did I ever just have two? Um, I've played it with just two before, um, and that worked out really well. Um, that but that was a personal table, not at a convention. Um, but yeah, I've 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 played with anywhere between two and eight, and it's pretty much been kind of the same thing. It's just a little harder as a GM, you know, to make sure that everyone is doing something at whatever point it is. Yeah, I I just I'll throw out the the interesting thought just because if if this leads anywhere, is you were talking about like having a limited limited amount of actions, you know. So you made me think as you're talking about it, it's an interesting concept because you know when do you need a mechanic that says, all right, this is how many action points you have to put generically in any scene. You're a player character, you're in a scene, you get this many points. Um, because like it made me think of Lady Blackbird. Lady Blackbird, um, John Harper, one of those like 14 pages is the adventure of the game. It's just this one shot. It's pretty, pretty magical. But uh, basically every player character, and I forget if they call them scenes or acts, you get a number of dice. Um, Craig, not, not unlike almost die laughing in a way, but you get a number of dice. And this is the limited amount of pool you have for everything you're going to do. And when you're done, that's all you get to do in the scene. So it's very interesting to think about like, when you'd implement that, because if you had two players... Okay, like, did we need that? Are they going to run out of options? Is one size fits all? Like, do you have to, like, then write rules that are like, okay, well, if there's five players, you get this many points. If there's three players, you get this many points. If you get seven players, you get this many points. And then maybe when you think from the outside looking in, that would be interesting to do, would be like, well, if you have seven players, we need to make sure that it keeps moving. So you get a limited Mm -hmm. amount of actions. Focus on the cool thing you want to do because you only get to do one or two things because you have seven dice and that's one or two cool actions. So it's interesting to think about when you would do that. And I could like my first thought on it is it could be cool. So I just wanted to throw that out there because it's sometimes you just hear something and they make you think about it. And you you feel like there's something good there, but you don't, I mean, obviously not for every game. Mm-hmm. Do you think any other games that have like limited action economy like that that aren't a board game? You know, some board games are like, you know twilight imperium right you only have so many actions yeah. to do or something D combat you get you know what 1.5 actions and some are partial so they take a half action so simples yeah it's very board game-esque i mean i'm trying to think of some that scale with the amount of players you have i mean i know that there are a lot of card games and things out there like you get this many cards for this many players and it changes depending on the amount of players you could do something just like that with a with a role-playing game yeah yeah, I can't really think anything like that. And I almost wonder why that's a thing in Lady Blackbird, but it is. I haven't, I haven't, um, it's, it's a game itself, Lady Blackbird. I've never played yeah, or it's, read it's it. It's cool. I mean, you it's free. You go to John Harper's like uh, one, seven or seven. He's got one of the, it's like two numbers and it's a company. And uh, he's got a lot of like one page games, like uh, Lasers and Feelings is really popular. But Lady Blackbird's like yeah. 14 pages, but like five or six of them are the character sheets. And then three of them are like the world, but the, it's one of those games where the whole game is the adventure. So it's like one adventure. Every character sheet has pretty much all the rules. The rules are on like a page or two, but it's a little meatier than like a lot of one page things. So I'll have to check it out. Yeah, yeah. you should. It's fun. <laughs> I, it's really I've, I've played a lot of Lasers and yeah. Feelings and I've been reading through. I've never played a um, Blades in the Dark before, but I have the yeah. book. 
it's neat to see the John Harper journey too, because because yeah. they had so many free games, you can kind of see some of that journey, right? The game design journey. So, what about um, solo games? Should should that was the second question? Should a game have a solo option? What do we think Is, about that? I mean, you know, on the forefront, right? Publisher uh, and promoter, and uh, they're hot since COVID, right? Like so. There's something that players want. Their players are learning that they exist. And we know that one of the worst things about role-playing games is that predominantly the customer is a GM who buys them, puts them all <laughs> on their shelf as trophies and only plays like, you know, 10% of them or ever gets to maybe reads 30% of them, you know? What? Um, right, what? Never. But the, the solo experience that. is just another way of being like, hey, Maybe they'll do something with this because they it's just one less. I mean, it's not just one barrier, honestly. It's most of the barriers are broken. Uh, but then there's the whole experience thing. You're right. One player versus three player, totally different experience. It's a it's a weird conundrum. It's something that I thought about a little bit. Um, once I started, like once I made a, a one player game, um, or so, a, no, sorry, a solo solo game when I made. Um, Secrets of the Vibrant Isle, which is, it's a solo game. You play it by yourself, no GM, um, and it and it runs like an adventure game. It's not a journaling game where it's more, you know, like there are journaling games that are prompts and they kind of give you a way to, you know, they give you ideas and inspiration and a, a framework for telling a story and they kind of set the stage. Um, but whereas this is like, you know, you're, it's more like you've got a character sheet and you're rolling dice and you got stats that you can increase and you can gain equipment and meet people and so forth. Um is I, I found myself starting to think about like, well, what, how do you, how do you take a game that is built as a um, multiplayer game and make a solo game that isn't just, oh, you just have one character and you use all the normal rules and everything. And do you get an experience that's in any way like the, the playing the game multiplayer Um I think, you know, we've talked a bit, there's, there's probably for certain, for certain games, it's going to be a very different experience. Like if you're playing a single class character in a, you know, just one player playing D and D like a fighter, a fighter game is going to be a very different game than a wizard game. Um, but with other games, you could have character, you know, character point builds where characters are much more jack of all trades, Swiss army characters that they can do a lot of different things. So you can, you know, probably have a, a game experience that's very similar to, you know, you'll find the one character will find themselves doing all sorts of things that a group of characters might find themselves doing. And if you've got a game where you can literally solve any problem in a variety of different ways. Um, and, you know, I think, uh, you know, Moonpunk, uh, Moonpunk might play that way a little bit. Like if, like you said, if you're just, if you're just playing like the action-y kind of character, you know, Every 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 problem is a nail if you're a hammer, <laughs> um, and and that becomes the kind of the way you play the game, um, um, along with all the, you know the basic moves and everything that you can do. Some of the other broader stuff that anybody could be doing. Um, but the, the the thing that I find the most uh, challenging, just conceptually, going from a game where there are a fair amount of mechanics that have to do with the interaction of the player's characters, like their relationships to each other, um, their threads between them. There's some games that literally they call, they call them like threads. Like your character have the, these ties that bind between two characters and you can break a thread to do something and you can gain a thread because of something. And it 
colors how the characters interact with one another, it colors the scene when it's formed or when it's broken. And if you have mechanics that are built around those sorts of things, like going to a one player game, that has to be almost, you know, you either have to mimic that with mechanics with the GM um, in a one on one game, but as a solo game, like, unless you're going to keep track of those sorts of connections, like, and use those mechanics. Now you're suddenly like, you're not really just playing one character. You're playing like, this is my primary character. And then there's these other characters that my character has a connection to. And I'm keeping track of how that, you know, affects my character and whether or not I gain bonuses or I can break threads to do things or gain threads because of things. And that, you know, like, how do you, how do you go from the multiplayer to a solo version of that type of a game and still maintain some of those mechanics that aren't just task resolution um, and have it not just be like putting a burden on the solo player of just having to like, well, now I'm going to have to recreate a whole bunch of characters in order to have all that stuff. Like you almost need another set of mechanics of like just things you track on your sheet. Like these are like, you know, check boxes or lists of things that, um, you you use rather than like thinking um, um, uh, theoretically about like the tie between the two characters. And Definitely seems. I don't know. It's I'm not sure what the response, what the answer is, or how to do it. I think, but I think it's an interesting. It definitely seems question. like you know it's a board game thing to almost more easily uh, go from four, three, two to one to add a solo version. Because it's already systematically going to tell each player how to play the game, you know, so it might be something where it's easy to alter. Yeah, because a role-playing game, for the most part, it's just, it really is a much different experience because even the games that really do it, you know, the ones I think of are like the Iron Sworn series, like these, uh, the Star Sworn and so on. Um, they they have like a whole list of charts and tables that are the Oracle system of how to basically have the game run you the game, right, through rolling on charts. Uh, to be the game master. Um, but that's different than if the actual play experience, we have a game master creating the adventure experience. Like it does both, but like they wouldn't need that whole Oracle system if, you know, if there wasn't a one player and they also have a two player co-op version, you know, where you could all two players co-op using it. But like that was a value added, but it was a lot of work added, you know? So yeah, I, I do think that's a big issue. And I don't think they have a different character sheet, but yeah, I'm with you, Craig. I would think that more often than not, you'd end up with a different character sheet because it's like your, yeah, your tool. There's... At least somewhat, like little little parts of the character sheet might be different to handle the me- handle yeah. any mechanical. There's a game. Just with there's your a game I character. recommend everyone like go out and look at uh, or purchase and buy, but they have their gameplay videos online. Um, it's Saltfish and Almanacs by the Story Brewers. Uh, it's a game. It's very unique. It won best rules for the Indie Grand Breaker Awards this year, and it can be played with two to four players, or it can be played solo, and you're still playing with the same cards. It's a role-playing game um, that I feel like it uses a lot of like board game elements, but again, it kind of goes back to what I was saying. If you're like this, like the effort in making the story happen has to be spread somewhere and it's very clear from these mechanics that a lot of that effort went into the mechanics themselves so you're playing um selfish and almanacs is a game where you are you ha- it's it's a role-playing game played with cards um its own little special deck of cards and you are playing traveling merchants going on the road and 
picking up goods, making making friends with the townsfolk. The the cards change depending on the season. You flip the cards over depending on the season, and it has information right there on the cards. Um, I'm trying to bring up one of the cards here. Um, um, you you know you decide what your merchant company is, and and then you set off with your character, and you're making the story happen as you go. Um, and I think what makes it work are, is two things. Number one, it's a GM-less game in the first place, so it's already designed so the storytelling can happen without the aid of a facilitator who's making the story happen. It's all aided through the power of your imagination and through the power of the cards that are there. And uh, the other thing that I think makes it really work well is that when you're out there on your journey, you're all going your separate ways in the first place. So you go through the gear, um, spring, summer, fall, on your own as a character, and you're narrating as you're on your own as a character through those three seasons. And then you come back home in the winter, and that's where you're interacting with each other. And in the case of a solo game, you're you know, you're not interacting with other people at the table, you're interacting, you know, with your own little brain and your imagination and the things that you've learned. Um, but I think it, it really lent itself. I mean, there's a reason why the judges picked it for best rules. Um, it's because the, the rules were so supportive of like that really kind of modular style of play. Now, again, maximum players four. So I don't know what that would look like. Um, if you, if you were trying to make a game that was, um, more uh more traditional so to speak uh, with more players and then also boil that down to a solo experience um but they don't even have this they don't even have a character sheet here it's just the like you know you just have your cards and you're 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 coming up with your own ideas for your character and writing them down like it's more about the story than it is about the the skills if that if that makes sense i recommend checking out saltfish and almanacs great game you made me think it might be easier to build that from the ground up, right? You're building yeah. the experience from one player and then expanding it might be a yeah. better way to go than more often <laughs> than not trying to tack on the solo thing of like, oh, this could be cool solo, but shit, we I got agree. all these rules and all this character sheets and stats and, you know, yeah. I agree 100%. I think if you if you mm -hmm. are going in it with the intention of eventually making a solo game, you should start with a solo game first. Yeah. Uh, Especially there's not as much, there's not as many models like, yeah, solo gaming is, is really popular now. And there's a lot of solo games out there, but there's not as many games that can be played solo, but aren't necessarily. So your designers are kind of making those models now. And yeah, I, I'd say start with the harder thing first and then do the, <laughs> do the easier, more things that there's more examples for afterwards. Greg question. Is it harder to make the solo game? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm is sure it's harder to make a solo game, less, but yeah. In hindsight, do you think it's harder? Uh, I think oh, it flexed different muscles, different design muscles is really what it came down to. So it was in, in a sense, it was harder because you were doing things like I was, I was doing something. It was, it was as hard to make secrets of the Viber Nile as it was to make murders and acquisitions because they were both the gotcha. first of a type of yeah. game that I made. Um, so, <laughs> uh, but like once you kind of figured out, you know, and neither one of them is terribly complex and robust. Like, so once you kind of, kind of figured out what it's going to be and kind of what it's going to be about and how it's going to function, like it was just a matter of just kind of fleshing that out, keeping, you know, everything fits on one character sheet. Like it's, it's not one of those games where you've got like four sheets of character stuff and um, you know, the rules aren't super long. Um, 
but it was uh yeah i think i think jess is right i think starting if you wanted to create a game that could be played (laughs) sorry but okay well and we're all agreeing with this you were talking about it jess um (laughs) starting starting at solo um and then but but kind of thinking and keeping in mind like where do like i'm gonna i'm gonna make this work for a solo game but in my brain i'm thinking always a little bit how does this translate to one gm one player and how does this translate to one yeah. GM multiple players? Like, how, how do I scale it up? I think scaling up would probably be easier than scaling down because you'll fall in love with certain things at sca- at the at the bigger, more robust game because you're probably going to have more going on. There's going to be more complexity. There's going to be more inter intermingling of pieces. You know, there's going to be like just more things that can can influence other things. And then trying to distill that. Um it it probably be easier to create like here's the core of a solo game that's relatively straightforward now we'll make it slightly more complex when we make it a gm and a player and then we'll make it a little more complex beyond that um and they'll just you know it'll handle certain things differently um at each of those three stages and now i want to design this type of game. <laughs> and while we've been talking i've Ooh. i've got an idea which i'm not surprised <laughs> what the game as, we, be as we looked at especially numbers of players <laughs> like in your, like you've done the solo game you've done plenty of different uh slices of you know the more traditional games which might lean a little to like less people or more people and then you have die laughing which is like on the opposite end which most people don't have a game that really sits you know well with that six seven eight players like they does it um i know like zombie world often gets like you know, like it, it's it's just notable that the box says like three to nine, you know, because we're like, really? Nine players? Like, is there any game that really does nine? It's up players? to nine. Yeah. But, you know, like Die Laughing really does eight well, you know, not that I, I still don't want eight people, you know, because it's hard mm-hmm. to even put eight people at a table, but but it could do it, you know, and it still have still be fast because you have that whole economy. I played yeah. I played I ran. I, I there was seven players plus me, eight of us at the table. We played um, an eight-person <laughs> eight game, eight-person game in in three hours yeah. at PAX Unplugged years ago when I was pl- when I was still playtesting the game. I was like, okay, let's see. Like I had a bunch of people that wanted to play, and it was like, okay, let's just. We went up to the food court up on that second floor piece there, um, and sat down at a table and just well, like, okay, that's, see how that's long a this game takes. that rewards <laughs> you for not being like the oh I'm super special I'm so cool and I will win everything kind of game. It kind of rewards you for taking risks and dying, so you can be a, a director instead. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and the dice don't give a crap. The dice, you know, just like it, the dice are gonna you're gonna roll well or you're gonna roll poorly. And there are people like um, one of the people that was playing the game was James Intracaso, who had played the game. Um, previously and so he raced to being a producer like he did everything he could like whenever he had a chance to make sure he was going to lose dice and kill his character out quickly he did that because he wanted to be the producer with the most producer points (laughs) did you feel that you had anything that you Um, had to like cut i mean i'm sure you had to cut but like what anything jump it's been a few years so like what jumps at you of like what choice you had to make for that high player count I mean, clearly, you know, people are dying every round. And I don't mean death, but they're slowly dying, right? I mean, for RPG reasons, they're dying really fast. But I mean, you have, if you have six dice you start with, and every turn you pretty much lose one, if not more. You only got, yeah. Either, you either, on every every scene you're in, you lose one of your dice yeah. or you make somebody else lose a die. So everybody who is, if there was a scene with five people in it, five yeah. people, five dice are going away. If there's a scene with four so people it, in it, four it dice are going fast. Away. And it can and it, and you can gang up on people. Like you could everybody could yeah. like make one person lose all their dice. 
like very quickly. You could Which kill a character nice part, in the second scene. Because the whole eight player thing, <laughs> you know, it, it can if it had that eight players or seven players, like it, it will trim the it will trim the player count because you can still you still play. Like you said, when you die, you become a producer and you still play. But then it's really the onus is on you of like when you mm-hmm. interject, you know. So, um, I was and you say, still function as a director uh, you when your turn comes up and. There's, pl- there's plenty for you to do. Yeah, that, that was the whole point of the game was to create a horror game where you die and still have something to do. Um, that is just making make, new yeah, character. What, what, but the the iteration process of that was that it went through... Um, I don't remember for sure how many. That game was 10 years in the making. I don't remember for sure how many versions it went through, but it was like a more traditional game. And then it was like going to be like something more like fiasco story-based game. And then it was going to be, I was toying with like doing a card game and it went back to a traditional, went to a fiasco type game and went to traditional. I mean, it bounced around between a whole bunch of ideas and the, the, the focus of the game changed a little bit. It was always a horror game about killing characters and you have still, still have something to do. I would still kind of like to do the version that I initially came up with, which was tentatively titled one of them, which was like we it was a GM and players game where um, in a horror game and the, the monster and there, you could have a, a bunch of different types of monsters. But the monster was always like the type of monster that didn't kill you. It turned you into one of them. So it was a zombie game or a vampire game or a demonic possession sure. game or a polter, you know, poltergeist haunted possession or something. Right. So that when you played the game. And your character got turned into one of them, hence the title of the game. You joined the GM's team and you had something to do as part of the GM team. And everybody that crossed over when their character got changed became part of that. So you would literally have the experience at the table of like, right now there's five of you and me as the GM. And by the end of the game, there's you, Pete, (laughs) and six of us, five of us. And so you personally feel outnumbered by all the brain power at the table that's playing monsters and trying to kill you the same way your character would be like crap you, you sold me earlier than you didn't even have to get that <laughs> before you mentioned me by name but yeah as soon as i, I the, the dividing line thing is really neat i mean i right like i'm thinking one shot ish you know i never i just never but nailed yeah, down what is, that would be it definitely seems like a, a design that should be out there it's it's on yeah. the list of of possible ideas. It's just like when my brain kind of figures yeah. out like, well, what should those what should the GM team roles be? Like, what will what will you get to do when your character other than continuing to play your character uh, occasionally? Yeah, what else us. will you get to do? Not that it's the same thing by any means, but you made me think of Among Us. Um, this has been a lot of fun, and we could obviously keep talking about this, <laughs> but we do have to wrap up. Um, this this is what happens when you get three players in a podcast. They just keep talking and talking. We need a mechanic that can wind you down. Pete, (laughs) thank you for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, tell us about yourself. Uh, tell us about your plugs. You plug your pluggables. Tell us where we can find you. Yeah, yeah. So (laughs) imagininggames.com is my website. Uh, Imagining Games, my company. Um, you can find all my socials there. The links to them. A little more active maybe on Facebook, but I do a little Instagram. There's a bit of Twitter, really just to kind of keep it alive. <laughs> but that's me. I will be in Salt Lake City next week for FanX. And then next month, I'll be at Game Hole. And then I'm going to go to Save Against Fear and then pack some plugs. So that kind of rounds up the rest of my year. So if you're local to any of those places, I'd love to meet you. Uh, most of those places, you can find me at the Imagining Games booth or running game events. Uh, if you didn't hear at Gen Con, a big announcement is I will be designing the new Ghost in the Shell role-playing game. 
based on the Rise to TV series. So we do believe we're going to get even more of the licenses. But once we had a Rise, we were happy enough to announce. So that's going to actually be for Mana mm-hmm. Project Studios. So that's exciting. Well, congratulations. Thank you. I love Ghost in the Shell. It's like one of my favorite anime. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you can also find me on Twitter and other social media at, at Joska. Um, I, in literally a month from the recording of this, well, actually th- a month and minus three days, uh, I'll, I'll have a Kickstarter coming out soon. should have a landing page. Like By the time this is out, there will be a landing page for the Coven of PS13. I'm waiting for this motorcycle to go by. <laughs> I don't hear co- it, which is good. Oh, well, I did, and it was really distracting. <laughs> uh, I'll have a Kickstarter out for the Coven of PS13. It is a new updated version of a game that I've previously released for free. It is The Craft meets Mean Girls. It's a GM-less game. Um, and now I'm going to have to explore it out. Well, I'll do a little bit of playtesting, see if I can actually play with all 13 of the playbooks at the same Ooh. time. Um, oh but you gosh, are you are <laughs> you are um, all different high school archetypes. You got the virgin. You have the goth. You have the the school president. And during the day, you are high school girls doing your high school problems. And at night, you are weaving together a dark ritual for the full moon. And uh, yeah, so that'll be that'll be kickstarting <laughs> in October for Witchstarter. Check it out. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, and I'm at Nerdburger Craig on um, all the short post-based uh, <laughs> social medias. Right now, Capers, uh, Capers Cyberpunk is running on Kickstarter. We are funded um, as of day two. Uh, we're rolling through stretch goals, um, primarily focused on getting adventures written. So I've got a whole bevy of people. Kevin Culp is coming up first and then Super Dylan writing adventures. And if we get enough of them, we're going to also put all those adventures into a book and you'll be able to buy an adventure book for cheap um, because that's one of the things that I've always wanted to do. And I figure I got to roll it into the actual Kickstarter rather than trying to do it later because uh, it's easier to do when you're also selling the main game because people get excited about the main game and they want adventures right now. Um, so there's that. Uh, check it Thank out. Thank you to our opening and closing theme song, which is Avel by Steph Sachs, licensed under Creative Commons. Thank you, Steph Sachs, and thank all of you for listening. We'll see you back here next time. Bye bye. Thanks. Hey, shout out to Mitch. Bye. Mitch reached out and said, "Hey, I listened to your episode of the R and D podcast. So if you listen to the credits, <laughs> got all the way through, you'll hear a shout out to Mitch. Mitch Moore, game designer." <laughs>